0: This is a recording made in the chapter of the opened book under the covering title Christian Fundamentals and we have now had a series of studies endeavouring to get an Old Testament background to the teaching of the second coming. This evening we commence number one of the New Testament teaching concerning that same coming. Now it is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together And those of you who are listening to this tape recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while while we read Matthew 24. In our last study, we were surveying the use of the house of God in the record in Chronicles and I think we saw enough to realise that the people and the temple were rather very closely linked together. And you will discover, as you already know, that this first great chapter in the New Testament concerning the second coming of Christ is intimately related to the temple. At the end of chapter 23, the Saviour said, I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. I omitted the, the verse that was pointed. Behold, Your house is left unto you desolate. Your house, desolate. And all the the period of his absence, that house is desolate. And there will be no renewal of it and all that it stands for until they shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Well, now you remember how this chapter commences. We've read it just now. The disciples were rather concerned they drew his attention to the temple and they pointed to the stones with which it was built. And he replied, uh, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, notice the Mount of Olives is where he sat. That is significant because immediately there comes to your mind the prophecy of the book of Zechariah that his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives And in the first chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, on the Mount of Olives he was speaking to his disciples and he was received up out of their sight and the angel said to those disciples, this same Jesus whom we have seen go into heaven shall so come in like manner. So you see, this idea of bringing with you the Old Testament background is still with us. We haven't moved away from our Old Testament background and colouring when we start Matthew 24. And yet, there are those who speak about the second coming. They make a start on Matthew 24. They interpret it as though it belongs to the church, which is the body of Christ. But as you see, the whole of Matthew is filled with references to Old Testament prophecy and promises and peoples and hopes. We're not losing anything. We're rather gaining if we see our own calling clearer than trying to fit ourselves into callings Belong to others. So he sat upon the Mount of Olives, and his disciples came to him privately. They were concerned. They knew that something serious was intended by his words, naturally. They said, Tell us, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? They asked three questions, and the remainder of this chapter is the answer. But the answers go in reverse order. They said to him, when shall these things be? And the answer, when, is at the end of the chapter. The second question was, what shall be the sign? And in verse 30 it says, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man. And the third question was, the end of the world. And he answers that first. Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. And then speaks about the end. But you notice the very first thing he did was not to answer any question. The very first thing he did said, this is a prolific field for deception. The moment you start asking the question, what shall be the sign? When shall it take place? It seems to start, the Mind of Men Kicking Over. I was only reading just, I think it was this morning, in a prophetic journal, or I will not name, I'm so sad to think that I have to say this. It was experimenting with 14 being a generation, and adding numbers and subtracting others, and it practically said there was a great evidence that the last day would be in 1960. Well, that's all right, but... In this magazine which does stand for the Word of God and does seek to guide with regard to the dangers of the times, would you believe it? To help confirm his testimony, the writer said, the Dalai Lama. You know who he is, don't you? The head of the religion in Tibet. The Dalai Lama has made good many prophecies which have come true and he also says 1960 will be a world war. Now fancy... There's enough evil going about with spiritistic interpretations of scripture to deceive without Christian people who are seeking to protect their readers to slip things in like that. This shows you how wonderfully the evil one can use those who would seek in any measure to serve the Lord unless they watch very carefully the way in which they handle this book. We're so warned in this book that it is not possible to compute the time. Look, look, let's go on with this for a moment. It doesn't matter. We are leaving the order for a minute. Supposing you could reckon up and you were sure of yourself with regard to all the dates. You know all the eclipses. You know all the possible answers to the problems of chronology and whatnot. Well, then I'm going to ask you this question. It says in verse 22... And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect, sake, those days shall be shortened. How many days will they be shortened? Well, nobody knows. So that if you've got the correct date, even then God says in his mercy, he'll make it shorter than that. So we're left. So much better. We haven't got to say to ourselves, if we only knew the date of the second coming, we would do this or we would do that, we wouldn't be found here, we wouldn't be in that line of business or whatnot, the Lord says, you occupy till I come. And I suppose if you and I were to say honestly, well I wouldn't like the Lord to find me doing that at his return, well it'd be best if he didn't find you doing it before he came, wouldn't it, you see? So there's no argument like that. Now we come back on our story. The end of the world. uh, That is a subject that can cause a good deal of fear and Discussion. I want you to notice, if you will, that we have the word end come several times. It says in verse 6, You shall hear of wars and rumours of wars, see that ye be not troubled, for all these things shall come to pass, but the end is not yet. And then it says in verse 18, All these are the beginning of sorrows. And it says in verse 13, And he that shall endure unto the end the same shall be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness, unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now there are two different words involved in this. Most of the passages, the word end is the ordinary Greek word telos, which does mean the end. But one word, and the most important word is found in the end of verse 3. That word is the word "suntelia. S-U-N-T-E-L-E-I-A. You can hear that it's connected with the word tenos, which does mean an end, but inasmuch as it's a very different word altogether by the prefix in front of it, sutenia. Well, now we can start uh, guessing what it means. We can say, well, it means a sort of a junction before you get to the terminus. Everything gathering up in that and then straight to the goal. But there's a far more uh, definite way of arriving at this meaning and that is this, that it was in common use and it meant a thing that everybody understood. I don't know whether you're anything like me but I think if I forgot certain dates, as I do, I don't think I will forget the date that I'm going on my holiday, you know, that would be very, very strange if I did that. Well, this is a holiday word. Some people who have got no faith in Christ, they, they, they remember December the 25th all right. Now, this word is a holiday word, and it meant the feast of the ingathering at the at the end of the year, the harvest festival. Now, I'm going to give you a chapter and verse for that, and that is found in Exodus 23. You might like to find it for yourself so that you can turn to it at other times if needs be. The book of Exodus 23. It says in verse 14, three times thou shalt shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. Three times. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. And then in verse 16, the feast of the harvest, the first fruits of thy labours which thou hast sown in the field. Notice the distinction. The harvest of what you've sown in the field, well, you don't sow fruit trees in the field, so this is another harvest. And then, the feast of the ingathering, which is the end of the year, when thou hast gathered in thy labours out of the field. Now, the words, the feast of the ingathering, not the word end, the feast of the ingathering is the student alive. So should we say it all over again in our modern way of putting it? They said to him, What shall be the sign of thy coming and the harvest festival at the end of the age? Because these men knew, as every student of the Old Testament knew, that the feasts that were held every year were prophetic of what was taking place in the mind of God in the yet future. The feast of trumpets, Why should they bother about having a feast of trumpets? Well, you think of the second coming in the New Testament. At the last trump, or in the book of the Revelation, the seventh angel sounded, and the kingdoms of this world became the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Oh, it means something. The trumpet shall sound. The dead shall be raised incorruptible. and We shall be changed. The trumpet. They knew that Pentecost had to be fulfilled, and they could look back and say it was. They knew that Christ our Passover fulfilled the first feast. They knew they were looking forward as their own prophet said, every man should live under his own vine and under his own fig fig tree, the feast of tabernacles. And so we have here the in-gathering at the end of the earth. Now will you look a little further down this chapter 24, verse 31. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect. From the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now that's very central to this theme. You've only got to look back to chapter 23. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. He came to gather them. He is coming to gather them. And in between those two, there's desolation and scattering because they denied the Holy One and just. And it came back upon them like a boomerang. So we've got that stress, the feast of the in-gathering that must take place. Let's look again. It said in verse 5, verse 4, take heed that no man deceive you. What form will the deception take? Well, among other things, there shall many, many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and to deceive many. you think that was a strange thing to ever happen, but it's happened down the ages. False Messiah. And again, I've had a book sent to me where some students are going out from Cambridge to interview, I think, a Malayan, who is a very kind, gentle, loving soul anything and everything except what the Christ of God came to do. Deception everywhere. You would not be deceived by outrageous wickedness. You're more likely to be deceived by gentlemen. And we remind ourselves that the Apostle Paul has told us that the, the ones who are the ministers of the evil one, he himself is transformed into an angel of light, and his ministers are ministers of righteousness. He doesn't make men commit sin, he makes men feel independent of the Son of God. He interferes with the worship element, not with the business element. Out of the heart of man proceed all these other things without an outside tempter. His business is in the religious world and what a mess is made of it by those who have been deceived. So he says, take heed, let no man deceive you. And then again, verse 23, then if any man shall say unto you, no, here is Christ or there, believe it not, because the deception is going to be so great, that if it were possible, they would deceive the very elect, and they would have signs to prove it. There are some people who have so got the conception that if anybody could work a miracle, that would be absolute proof they came from God. Well, the testimony of Scripture is just the opposite. I think we ought to make sure of this. 2 Thessalonians chapter two, the second Thessalonians chapter two is referring to this great period of deception which is yet to come upon the earth. And it says, verse 7, The mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him, whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power, and signs, and lying wonders. Those three words are used of the miracles of Christ. Power, signs, and wonders, given by the Father to attest him as his anointed. And the only difference is, these are lying ones. But they're real miracles. You remember that Moses, he performed miracles before Pharaoh. And in some of the cases, the, the Egyptians did the same. They had powers from evil master, in a large sense, parallel to those that were given by God. So, miracles, signs will be there, so that if it were possible, they should deceive the very elect. And then you get a very characteristic uh, statement here, verse 26, Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. Have you had anyone come to your door? and assure you that Christ is here, and been here a long time in secret? Well, do it gently, but say, do you know my Bible says, if anyone comes and tells me that, believe it not? And you'd be surprised that some of these dear souls, they don't even know that that's written. And then he goes on to say, why you need not believe it? Were you in London about a week ago, when we had those violent storms, when you heard it crashing over your head and you could wonder where the next blow was going to fall, do you think anybody had to say to somebody else, do you know, I think we're going to have a storm? They didn't have to tell one another, you knew it. So he says, as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even out of the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. You won't have to argue. Friends, if you can stand on anybody's doorstep and tell them that Christ has already come, that's a proof he hasn't. For nobody will stand on anybody's doorstep when he's here. The argument will be all over and you'll know it as well as everyone else if you're here. So you see, the very truth of God is not sacred in the hands of this evil one. He can use the truth of God to deceive. So we are warned. Now let's take other phases of this thing. You should hear of wars and rumours of wars. Well, how can that be a sign? When I was a kid at school, it seemed that all the history I heard was wars and rumours of wars. and king did this and somebody else did that, fighting and whatnot. I don't know if it bothered me then. I'm afraid I'm a little bit like my grandson who a year or two ago, he said he, he liked reading the Bible, especially judges. But well, they're fighting one another like hammer and tongs in, judges. When can you find a period in this world's history when there were not either wars or rumours of wars. But you say, how can that be a sign? Perhaps we haven't read enough, Fred. Let's go on. There should hear of wars and rumours of wars, so that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. I'm going back to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 19. And the prophet Isaiah is the burden of Egypt. And in the second verse, and I will set the Egyptians against the Egyptians, and they shall fight every one against his brother, and every one against his neighbor, city against city, and kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of Egypt shall fail in the midst thereof, and I will destroy the council thereof, and they shall seek to the idols, and to the charmers, and to them that are familiar spirits, and to the wizards. Here we've got all the corruption, the deception, the fighting among themselves. This is not indiscriminate wars all over the earth. This was spoken to people who knew their Bible. They said, ah, oh, what's Egypt then? And when Egypt starts getting into this predicament, that will be one of the signs. That may be coming near, friends. So Don't you see it specific. And so we might go on. Let's notice the way in which other features belonging to the Old Testament are before us. Verse 15. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee to the mountains. For well, this is dealing with the prophecy of Daniel as though it's really going to take place, isn't it? Because they're going to say, oh, the time has come, we must flee. And some of them, in the early days, when it was incipient and not really being completely fulfilled, they didn't save themselves by acting upon this as they will in a fuller sense when that dreadful moment comes. But you notice, Daniel the prophet, how can the prophecy of Daniel have any bearing upon the church, which is the body of Christ, and has no relationship to prophecies of Old Testament or promises to fathers or covenants or relationships, We ought to be warned, didn't we, when we're looking at this, to leave it in its place and say, that's a part of the story. I must make this teaching of the second coming in Matthew 24 harmonised with the prophecy of Daniel. And if I can't make that fit with Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, that's because it doesn't fit. I'm not losing anything. You and I are not going to wait until we see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet before our hope is realised. It's timeless. There's no statement made in any of our epistles that this thing's got to happen and that thing's got to happen before it takes place. But these people, they couldn't say, oh, the second coming of Christ might be at any moment. You heard that, haven't you? Well, these couldn't say it because you said, well, where's the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet? Oh, well, that must be Then they point to some other movement, you see. Not so. These are specific. Test any prophecy that's been fulfilled in Scripture. It's fulfilled as God said it would and there's no need to spiritualize it or explain it away. Then you will notice again a little bit further down it says we're talking about now this question of when the Son of Man shall come uh, Further down say verse 36 but of that day and hour? No is no man. No, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now that's a statement. But it says the day or the hour. It doesn't say that you will have no indication whatever, but that's just as much denying the word of God as it is when you compute all the dates and add it up and say you know. So it would be reasonable. He says you don't know the day or the hour. God is going to shorten that time for his intellect's sake. So let's stop you. So you say, oh Lord, I've got nothing to guide me, whatever. But he says, I'm guiding you all the time. Look. Verse 32. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and put it forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. Of course, this is speaking of Palestine. Each country has its own symbol. Very often, your breath is taken one spring morning by seeing an almond tree out in somebody's front garden. Well, that's biblical. When Jeremiah was asked by God, he said, What seest thou, Jeremiah? He said, I see the rod of an almond tree. So will I watch over my word to perform it. We say, so what? What's the connection? Oh, if you only knew Hebrew, friends. The almond tree is called the watcher tree because it stands there at the beginning and says, Spring is here. Oh, he says, you've seen right, Jeremiah. I watch a watcher tree, so will I watch over my word to perform it. Now, you see, that was built upon that thought. Well, now it says here, with regard to this, uh, coming, the fig tree. Now, the fig tree has much to do with the people of Israel in type. And I think it would be wise if we turn for a moment to the other passages where this fig tree is mentioned. Chapter 21. Verse 19 and 20. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only, and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. You see? It had nothing but leaves. He applies it in verse 21. If you have not faith, or if you have faith and doubt not, you should not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but say to a mountain and so on. So there's one reference to a fig tree. I'll give the others first before we deal with the problem. Uh, Luke 13.6 Luke's Gospel thirteen. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereof and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree. Three years. The earthly ministry of our Saviour was three years and a half. I come three years seeking fruit and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it hit the ground? The answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it, and if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. Oh, it was, friends. They were spared again after the crucifixion of Christ. They were spared through the acts of the apostles. All day long have I stretched out my hands to a disobedient and a people. The fig tree was cut down. And then there's another passage, Mark, the 11th chapter. Mark the 11th chapter. The 13th verse. He was hungry, verse 12, and seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if happily you might find anything thereon. And when he came to it he found nothing but means for the time of figs was not yet. Now that's always been a problem, isn't it? You say, Well, why should you be surprised when you go to a fig tree? There are no figs on it, because the time of figs was not yet. It does sound nonsense, doesn't it? But that's only because of our ignorance. The fig tree in Palestine bears fruit, and the fruit remains on that tree for two, three or four years. And if I had not got rid of my library, I could have given you chapter and verse for the way in which the income tax inspector taxed the fruit that was the fourth year differently from the third year, differently from the second year. And the moment the Lord saw that tree with its display of leaves, a healthy tree, he should have found fruit upon it, you see. all the time of things was not yet, so far as the next crop was concerned. But there it was displayed to everybody, look what a healthy tree I am, and every healthy tree would have some of the fruit that was not gathered and remaining to grow. So there was nothing wrong about it. That was Israel. They gave all the evidence that they were God's people, but when he came to them, nothing but leaves. It's a sad thought that it might be true of some Christian people. Isn't there a hymn that says, nothing but leaves, the Spirit grieves over a wasted life. Well, that was it. So there's nothing incongruous about it. Whenever you come up up against a problem like that in Scripture, criticize yourself first, friends, and go with a quiet, meek spirit and you'll discover there's an answer. Set it aside as being something which is a mistake and it will close up For the Bible's a very sensitive plant. It can, as it were, open or close as you approach it. You'll find that many a time. And if you want to wriggle out of anything, friends, look up the concordance and you'll find a passage which will solve your conscience. Every time when you stand in front of the Lord, you'll be judged by the attitude you've taken to His wondrous word. We are dealing with a holy thing, but we're dealing with this book. Well, now we come back to Matthew 24, one or two other features. I was thinking about the computation of the time, which is such an important element in the mind of some folks. So He does not say, I'm giving you no sign. In Matthew 24, He says, Consider the fig tree. If you see the parallel passage in Luke's gospel, it says you see the fig tree and all the trees. Now Luke is the one who goes back to Adam. Luke is the one who gives you the good Samaritan. Luke is the one who stood with Paul, the Gentile minister. See, so Luke says the fig tree, Israel, and all the trees. If you've got any eyes in your head and the Bible to guide you, look at the movements among the nations just now, especially those in biblical land. Look at the reshuffle that's taking place. Look at the possibilities. Look at them almost quoting scripture when they're going to blot out Israel and raise them from the ground and drive them into the sea and do I don't know what. And the confederacy, which is mentioned in the prophet Isaiah, are the mingled people, as far as my memory serves me, both the word confederacy and the word mingle is the Hebrew word Arab, A R A B. So that's what the Arab means, a mingled people. And it's a confederacy of those people. It's all incipient and waiting for the moment for what we sometimes have used the expression for the balloon to go up. And it will. But all these things have not been written to distract us. But for those to whom it applies, that these people to tell them the Lord was near. Well now once again with regard to this fulfilling. Verse 37. As the days of Noah were. So you're not left without a guidance. You're not told the day and the hour, but you're told the character. And as you see the world drifting back to the terrible conditions that were on the earth just before the flood, you begin to say to yourself, well, it's becoming like it again in many things. The, the more you go beneath the surface with regard to the things that are taking place in society, with regard to morals, with regard to many things, you said, it's going to be like the days of God. And then once more, I can tell you when the second coming of Christ is going to take place in spite of all I've said. Oh, you can say, yes. it is. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, you'll see the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. So I know you see. Now what about this tribulation? Because, there's tribulation mentioned in various parts of Scripture as belonging to the experience of most Christians. Tribulation, work with patience, patience, experience, that's Romans 5. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, all sorts of tribulations because they work, have a perfect work. James is warning about it. Uh, just one word with regard to our English word tribulation. It's a, a valuable word. It's derived from the Latin tribulum, which was the name of a very heavy sledge with a great iron teeth that the oxen dragged behind them over the corn. And it divided the wheat from the chaff. And the wheat all settled down underneath and was quite happy and the chaff was torn to bits and blown away by the wind. Tribulation, if it's said by God and endured in the right spirit, can do that. It can separate the chaff from the wheat, although the evil one doesn't want it to do that. Tribulation. Now it says here in uh, verse 21, For then shall be great tribulation. Then shall be a great tribulation. You could have said there shall be come, there shall be the great tribulation, because it says, such of as not since the beginning of the world, to this time, known or ever shall be. Well, there's only one friends. There's only one tribulation that can be so great that there's never been anything like it before and never anything like it again, isn't there? Well, that's not taken place yet, friends. But if you'll turn back to the book of Daniel, chapter 12, you may get a little hint there. Daniel, the twelfth chapter. And at that time shall Michael stand up the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. We're uh, One of these days, in this series, I hope we shall get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And of course, a good many people say, well, I, I'll go with you a little bit with regard to your attitude to Matthew 24, but of course, 1 Thessalonians 4 is our hope. For well, then I raise the question, if 1 Thessalonians 4 is the hope of the church of the mystery, Why is it associated with the voice of the archangel? Because there's only one archangel and his name is mentioned in the Bible and his name is Michael. And the Bible tells me most surely that when Michael stands up, he stands up for the children of Israel. So that if Paul knew this Bible as I knew he did, and then on top of that he's writing by inspiration of God, which we're assured, he's used a word to say this doesn't belong to the church of the mystery, this belongs to the hope which is associated still with this people. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was. Now some people will say, ah, that's only a time of trouble. That's not a time of tribulation. You try to tell somebody that who's up to his eyes in it and see what he'll say to you. There shall be a time of trouble, such as never was, since there was a nation even at that same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered Every one that should be found written in the book. We're on very holy ground here, but God's not going to lose one, friend, However great the tribulation may be, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake the resurrection, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting or age-abiding contempt. We've got to watch our step here a little bit, but it's outside of our subject for the moment. But there's the link again. Daniel, the ninth chapter... The desert the abomination in the temple, and Daniel the twelfth chapter, when it says that there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been nor never will be. Isn't it good to know there never will be another one like it? We are told in the book of the Revelation that how long that's going to last. In the midst of the last week of Daniel's prophecy, it's called a time, times and a half. It's called forty two months. It's called 1,260 days and if you're good at arithmetic you'll discover that's three years and a half. So three years and a half even I know is just half of seven years. So in the midst of the seven years as prophecy says the evil one's going to manifest himself. He's going to break all covenants and Israel will be in the midst of it and there'll be a time of trouble such as never has been but three years and a half of its limit and then He shall destroy him with the brightness of his coming. And the days of their suffering will be over. Now in Matthew again, we have another reference. It says in verse 30, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes, our version says, the tribes of the earth. Well the word ge, which enters into our geography and geology, it means the earth in its vast sense. It means the land of Palestine in a limited sense. It could be the patch of ground in which you grow a few vegetables. So the context alone must tell you. But this is a partial quotation from the prophet Zechariah. He says, all the tribes of the land apart. And what does it say before that? They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, saith the Lord. And they shall mourn for him as a man mourneth for his only Son. That's what's taking place here. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the land mourn for him. I think you'll find a reference to the same thing in the first chapter of the book of the Revelation, which, as you know, by its very title, refers to the second coming of Christ. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all tribes, that word kindreds is the word tribes mm-hmm. of the earth, that's the word land. And all the tribes of the land, he's quoting Zechariah 12, shall wail or mourn because of him. So it's twice over. So now we've got this, that immediately after the tribulation of those days, Shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give a light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. These are very explicit, aren't they? And God is going to keep his word with regard to it. And these things have never taken place yet. The only way in which you can explain them is to speak about the sun and the moon and the stars as referring to spiritual things something to do with churches and popes and bishops and presbyterians or whatever you don't like, but the scriptures won't allow that, especially if you look at the prophet Joel and some of the passages in the Old Testament when they speak about these things. Earthquakes. Well, there may be a good many people are shaken up over other things, but literal earthquakes have accompanied certain apostasies in the scriptures. I think the first earthquake that's ever mentioned in the Bible is in connection with the doom of those men who uh, burnt false incense before the Lord. was it that Nathan and a bayou? And the earth opened and swallowed them up and they went down alive. That's the first time that's mentioned. I don't say there weren't others, but that's the first one. And then you get another earthquake associated with the year that King Isaiah died. And he died a leper because he put out his hand and touched the incense in the temple. And when the Lord comes at his feet, stand upon that mountain, there's going to be a great earthquake, as there was in the days of Ahaz and Sodom. You see? So these things, earthquakes are all over the place. And it's as they should increase. But some of them will have a very, very definite relationship to these prophetic statements. Well now, let's see what else we've got to say before our time runs out. The word gather together. I'll come back to that again in verse 31. The word gather together. I'll tell you what it is. Epi-synagogi. If I say synagogi many times, you'll say synagogue. Yes. A synagogi or a synagogue is a place where people gather together. So it can mean Like a chapel, or a meeting place. But this is no chapel or meeting place, this is the great gathering. And as that word is used about twice elsewhere, I think it wouldn't be a bad plan if we noticed where it comes. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, or you say we turned to that just now. Yes, we did, and we're going to turn to it again, and we shall find that this word, which means to gather together, is, is there in the very front of this chapter? Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto Him. Now nobody has, that I've ever met has said that gathering together means going to chapel. Would you say does anybody ever say so? Well, let's turn to the one other occurrence, Hebrews chapter ten, twenty-five. Verse 24, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exalting one another, and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. Now does that mean, just what it seems on the surface, that they were not to stay away from a meeting? Or does this peculiar word, which only occurs here in 2 Thessalonians 2, mean, and not forsaking? not turning away from, not holding like me, that, that gathering together unto him as you see the day approaching. Because I've heard this quoted, this passage quoted, to justify going to a meeting even though they don't teach the truth. Oh, we mustn't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. This very same book says, let us therefore go out unto him without the camp bearing his reproach. We do far more in the uh, far more obedience in staying away from all meetings if necessary, rather than sit down and tolerate anyone who tears the book to pieces or in any measure belittles our Saviour. This text is, never should be used to urge anybody to go to some meeting or another. You know, you can have an evangelistic campaign, and the idea is now every one of these converts must be uh, exhorted to go to some church or the other. Oh, friends, that can be very awful. Some church or the other in some neighborhoods, the man will be damned before he starts on his Christian pathway. So we'll watch our step over that, I trust. But Now, is there anything else here that I ought to have included because I'm not taking it systematically? You notice that he's spoken about the end. The end is not yet. Would you come back to verse 8? All these are the beginnings of sorrows. Now that particular word, sorrow, is used in other parts of scripture to childbirth. Childbirth. Not sorrow in the general sense, uh, but that sorrow which is associated with the birth of a child. That's the thought. This is not merely suffering for suffering's sake. Something is about to be born. And the nation is to be born in a day. Out of all that tribulation and trial, this people will then, as it were, be born in a day. So he says this is the beginning of silence. And then, of course, the words in verse 14 are often quoted to justify foreign missionary work. But we don't need to quote wrong scriptures to justify foreign missionary work. Foreign missionary work should stand on its own basis. And because you have a gospel to preach, and there are men and women without salvation, that's sufficient marching orders if you have the ability and the other qualifications necessary to go. But you see, this is often taken. And this gospel of the kingdom. So it's a specific statement. This gospel of the kingdom. Well, what sort of gospel is that? Well, you know that our Saviour separated his disciples and in the early gospel, early chapters of this gospel, he sent them out to preach and say the kingdom of heaven is at hand and as you go, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. This gospel of the kingdom, I'm not preaching the gospel of the kingdom. I'm, I'm told to preach the gospel of the grace of God to sinful men. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness before the end comes. By whom? I don't know. But God knows his intention. And so we find there is this statement. And then again, verse 13, But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. That must not be taken out of its context. This has particularly to do with this time of testing and trouble but he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved as reference to the kingdom and its proclamation. Well then, associated with this section of the Gospel according to Matthew is a whole series of parables. How are we for time, alright? whole series of parables. And although I can't launch out now into an examination of the parables of the Gospel according to Matthew, I can give you this hint. The Gospel according to Matthew divides into two parts at chapter 16. And on this side of chapter 16, there's one set of parables. The parables of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. That's all. Just that one set. When you come over to the other half of the Gospel according to Matthew, you have another series of parables. And the first one deals with taking an account of his servants. And at the, the group at the end is reckoning with his servants. And the parables that come in between is people who are looking after a vineyard or it's all to do with service, particularly in the absence of the master. The parables have got their place. So you'll see at the bottom of this chart, I've given an indication of ten, of seven parables that supplement this passage, this teaching of Matthew 24. Don't forget, there is no chapter division in the Bible, and when chapter twenty five commences and says Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened, it means then at that time when he's been speaking. Although we ought to watch and see that our lamps are trimmed uh, in the general sense, then shall the kingdom of heaven be like this, and some will be caught napping. Some of them will be excluded, like the foolish virgins. So now we've got these seven parables. 24 verses 32 and 33. You see by the fig tree that summer is near, so the end is near too. In the next, we have the parable of the day of Noah. We have the one to be taken and the other left. We have the thief in the night. We have the ten virgins. We have the ten talents. And then we have the separating the sheep and the goats. Now all those should be taken into account when we are dealing with Matthew 24. But it's not possible to cram all that lot in, of course, in one study. So we go back on our story just for the last two or three minutes. They said to him, tell us, when shall these things be? And he answered it at the finish, immediately after the tribulation, or when you see the fig tree giving its leaf. Uh, What shall be the sign of thy coming? You'll see the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and the various movements that will take place among the heavenly bodies at that great day of disturbance. And what shall be the end of the world? And we've already learned that was a special word. What shall be the harvest festival when that day of in-gathering comes? So for the moment we leave our study There's much more to add as we go on in this New Testament approach to the second coming of Christ. And here for the moment, we've started in the gospel of the kingdom to see the coming of heaven's king. As we go through the New Testament, we shall find him coming, not only as king, but he's going to be manifested in glory as the head of the church, which is the body. And that will be the phase of the second coming, as we use the term, when we shall be dealing with that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. But that, of course, will have to be postponed for future studies.